Okay, so this is our, um, hopefully, I think, uh, unless something goes very wrong, uh, last session on uh, Simone Dong's imagination and invention. So we're in the conclusion of the book at page 186 in the translation. So we just, I mean, I, I, to do a recapitulation, I think I'd have to go over the whole book, essentially, but so I won't do too much of that. But uh, the last session, I think we finished the part on, uh, we finished part four, so uh, the part on invention. And then we just started the conclusion and then decided not to sort of rush and try to finish it. So we broke it up into two sessions. The general idea that he's uh, expressing here in this conclusion, the way that the cycle of the image has this sort of exteriorization function and, and the way this relates to social interaction, uh, an image in a sort of psychological sense is, of course, something only one person or one organism can you know use. Um, so if, if you have a, a sort of mental image of what your home territory looks like for whatever animal that is. Um, that's like one particular animal's image of that territory. But then when the image becomes something like a drawing, um, an artifact, uh, a, you know, a technical object or something like that. So in this whole process of um, invention, the image now becomes something that can be used in social interaction. So I can make a drawing that um, depicts, um, I don't know, the like I can make a map of a of a region and then I can share it with someone else who's never been to that region. And then they have some, you know, limited but still valuable um, information about how to navigate in that territory. Um, so, yeah, so there's this kind of um, uh, function of externalization of the image. So the image becomes something separate from the organism uh, that produces it. Uh, and this allows it to be shared with other organisms in uh, in social interaction. And, and of course, this, you know, in human societies, this is an extremely important element of, uh, of social interaction. Like pretty much, I think, uh, I think it's probably universal among human societies to have some use of um, images uh, of some kind, whether it's like, uh, you know, geometrical designs or uh, uh, representations of objects or some anyway, some sort of image use um, serving social functions or as a mediation of social relationships. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of what he talked about in the first bit of the uh, of the uh, conclusion that we looked at. Um, and then, oh, maybe the other point here is also this role of um, the uh, change of the order of magnitude. Um, so this is again sort of connected with this idea of externalization, but like the image in a psychological sense is um, is sort of limited to it's a sub uh, individual level and it's it's sort of uh, a component of an individual organism um, but then through the cycle of the image uh, and then the process of invention and externalization of the image the image can be something um, sort of uh, at a greater order of magnitude or it becomes part of the environment of other organisms um, in in a, a society of social organisms like human societies, um, so you have you can think of, for example, um, the symbolic images that we saw in part uh, C, I believe, of the or sorry, no B of the of the book. Um, um, the um, these images, so you can think of like religious uh, imagery or um, sort of historical narrative about like you know where our people fit into. Um, the history of the world, things like like this. Um, these these types of images uh, have um, 
a sort of greater than individual significance so that um, it's it's not the case that um, like it's not the case that the image is something confined to the life of one person, but a person is sort of incorporated into the functioning of one of these images um, that you 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 know as an individual member of a society you um, uh, sort of uh, function in such a way as to maintain these images and to preserve them and pass them on to the next generation. Um, so again, a sort of change of scale of um, of uh, the image from something personal to something suprapersonal. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next bit, and we should finish up this uh, this book today, and then we can talk about what we want to move on to next. Okay, so I'll do the first reading. Implications of the present proposal. And it's worth specifying first the relative character of the created object. The created object is in fact a point of the milieu reorganized by the orientated activity of an organism. We can oppose neither human constructive operations to those practiced by animals, or the fabrication of instruments smaller than the organism and borne by it to the setting up of roads, paths, storerooms, or limits in a territory serving as a media to the organism, and thus larger than it. The tool and the instrument, just as much as paths and protections, are part of the envelope of the individual and mediate its relation to the milieu. You must characterize this mediation topologically. Whether instrument, tool, or specific structure of a territory, the object bearing the results of an activity of invention has received a supplement of coherence, of continuity, of intrinsic compatibility, but also of compatibility with the non-elaborated remainder of the milieu and with the organism. These two external compatibilities with the quote-unquote wild milieu and the living individual are the result of the intrinsic compatibility that enables a single object to perform a simultaneous plurality of functions. A pathway in order to exist according to internal compatibility must be endowed with coherence and stability as a physical object impermeability, the equal distribution of loads on the ground, etc. And the search for this internal compatibility is what appears foremost to be the goal of conscious and willful invention. There may be several formulas of compatibility according to the materials used. The Roman road is founded on a system of rigid sublayers. It is founded like a building. Today's roads are relatively elastic constructs that must be extremely waterproof and have optimal drainage. Their formula is the flexible continuity of their surface, much more so than the hardiness of each supporting block. When it ages, the Roman road is eroded one flagstone at a time, while the contemporary road loses its equilibrium across long undulations or buckles. External compatibility with respect to the subject may be summarized in terms of a, of a viability for a definite mode of circulation and performance. Horse-drawn conveyances pro prohibiting sharp rises but allowing for sharp curves, loaded mules, fast engine-powered vehicles, etc. It is the characteristic of adaptation to a living being, whether direct or through a new and smaller mediation vehicle. External compatibility with respect to the general milieu is generated by the layout of the road according to the relief and composition of the terrain, including risks of avalanche, of mudslide, and so on. The road as a resurfacing develops supplementary mediations that connect it to the wild milieu around it. Bridges, viaducts, tunnels, tree hedges, anti-avalanche reinforcement, preventative planning, planting, sometimes at great distances like outposts. Internal compatibility then, which makes the road into a consistent construction, appears as a two-way transfer system between the living being and the milieu. When this compatibility is established, it enables the individual to move through the milieu in a continuous manner. But conversely, it also enables the preservation and reinforcement of engineering structures of safety and of protection. This self-constituting character of the created object is so strong that invention is generally a manner of treating a problem as solved in a non-tautological way. 
If one road is already built, it will be less difficult to build another a few feet away thanks to the ease in transporting machines, workers, and materials. The solution consists in making this quote-unquote solved problem equivalent to a gradation of operations mutually enabling, enabling each other until co completion. Leveling, laying a gravel base, etc. until the last surfacing layer, whose finishing work re requires an already perfectly leveled roadway. The created object is cumulatively organized by operations linked in a coherent manner, bringing the order of magnitude of the quote-unquote wild milieu closer to that of the individual operator. The category of the quote-unquote created is thus broader than that of invention, for it comes into being as soon as there is a cumulative and coherent effect of organization between the individual and the milieu, bringing an intermediary mode of, ex of mediation into existence. But it can also integrate inventions because of the created object's character of internal coherence and multiple compatibility, which develops optimally when the solved problem method can be used. The progress of the created object consists in a development of the intrinsic compatibility of the object, which extends the reach of the coupling between milieu and the living being. All created objects that are means of communication of a human origin, for instance, follow this development, derived from formerly used natural pathways, but increasingly tending towards internal modes of compatibility that enable a more extended and more universal penetration of the natural milieu. It is not each created object apart from the other that we should consider, but the universe of mediation they form and in which each potentially serves as a means to the others. Right, so this um, has to do with, uh, is connected with what I was mentioning at the beginning, uh, this role of the object as a sort of externalization of the image. Um, but here it's, it's um, thought of in connection with the milieu. So an organism like a human being uh, is always... Um, coordinate with uh, an environment uh, of some kind. Uh, and this, like we saw this uh, at length in the individuation book, um, how the individual organism is always, um, is always a result of a process of um, individuation that separates it out from the milieu. Um, and so uh, when you have the result of an individuation, when you have an individual and a milieu, then, then there's, um, some sort of uh, mediation uh, process that can that can happen um, between the two to to sort of um, um, make aspects of that milieu more um, available or more easily manipula manipulable by the organism. Um, so the example that Simon Don is going through here is the example of a road. So um, traveling through, say, a forest. Um, it's relatively difficult. Um, you have to sort of climb over tree branches on the ground, and uh, you know, it could be, you know, uh, streams or um, anyway. There's a variety of different obstacles um, to traveling through a forest uh, that um, road making uh, allows you to clear. So, um, sort of the most basic one is just like you know moving branches out of your path and and making like a a clear path through the forest. Um, and this can be even like not not a sort of planned um, road construction operation, but just through the action of many people traveling in a similar direction through the forest that, um, you know, clear a couple of obstacles each time, uh, you, you end up having something like a path through the forest um, that's just created by the people that, that travel along that path. Uh, but then um, in more sort of formal um, road construction, you would have, you would like deliberately clear obstacles, you would um, level the surface to make it, um, you know, uh, better for vehicles to travel over. Um, 
you might build a bridge over a stream, uh, etc. So you you are um, making uh, the environment more um, approachable by the organism, by an individual human being or a human being uh, using a vehicle of some kind. Um, and by this means, you you sort of mediate between the uh, what he calls here the wild milieu. So the milieu is sort of separate from any human intervention, and then the organism. Uh, within that milieu, so um, you're you're sort of taming the milieu, making it easier to manage, um, and um, yeah, in that sense, you're you're mediating between this um, sort of wild nature, this um, unmanaged uh, state of the world, and then uh, the the human world. Uh, and so there's with it, so this kind of uh, mediation requires um, what he calls here internal and external compatibility. So um, in the internal compatibility is just the the fact that any object that you're using as a kind of mediation has to um, whatever sort of function that object has has to be sort of internally coherent. Each of the so like a road, for example, um, has to be constructed in such a way that it doesn't sort of destroy itself or that it it doesn't degrade too quickly. Um, so like you would use, for example. Um, um, some sort of um, base layer of the road that prevents the the surface from you know sinking or buckling or um, changing structure too dramatically or too quickly, um, and this just sort of ensures that the road as an object um, you know can uh, uh, persist through time. It it doesn't degrade um, you know too quickly or too uh, immediately. And then the external compatibility is just the the way that the road mediates um, between the the organism on the one side and the um, wild milieu on the other side, so it has to sort of be compatible with both. Um, in in some respect, has to has to be compatible with the uh, capacities that the individual organism has. So, like a road has to be you know wide enough for a person to walk on it, or wide enough for a vehicle if it's used by vehicles, etc. And then also it has to um, adapt to the environment. So um, it has to uh, either you know follow the contours of a hill, or it has to you know cut out um, a path through the hill, uh, a tunnel, for example. Um, or in some way, it has to you know adapt to the setting in which it finds itself. So it's it's adapted both to the individual organism and to the setting, um, and in that way, it mediates between the two. Okay. Uh, so any comments or questions or anything about that bit before we move on? I don't have any comments or questions, but I can read the next section. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think the last bit was fairly straightforward. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, and let me know if my mic cuts out. I've been having trouble with my headphones. <clears throat> if we consider the created object as a mediator of the relation between living beings and the milieu, it is less arduous to find the link between inventions among animal species and humanity. The use of instruments is indeed rather rare among animals, yet nothing forces us to consider the building and fabrication of instruments as the preeminent instance of invention. Instruments and tools are but a relay in the creation of objects, one more mediation between the created object and, and the living being creating it. Since a large number of animals are endowed either with specialized organs or with specialized operative modes connected to these organs, instrumental mediation is not necessary given this pre-adaptation. 
There is a direct relation of operative modes and organs to the activities that create objects, such as the building of a nest, the digging of a lair, and more generally, the construction of a territory. The created object exists as soon as a defined activity overdetermines the natural world, imparting to it a topology that expresses the presence of living beings according to a selective mode of behaviors. Simple visual or olfactory marking already represents a coherent demarcation, itself related to locations functionally connected to other activities, rest, food gathering, shelter, etc. By the same token, marking acquires a meaning for intra- and interspecies social relations. The most concrete and incomplete created objects, such as nests and layers, are also nexuses and intra- and interspecies social relations, as well as mediators of the relation between living beings and the milieu. In some cases, the created object is highly multifunctional, such as the termite hill, which, in addition <clears throat> to having a high degree of all of the usual functions of the nest thermoregulation, is also a pathway to the objects on which termites work. The created object is, first of all, the world is a reality organized into a territory. There's also the envelope of concrete individual existences in such a tight way that for some species, the created object is almost fused with the organism, as in corals. Is the Cohen, I don't know how to pronounce this, Cohen-in-chim, a created object or an organism? We understand with such cases the continuity between functions of growth and the activity of creation, a genus of which invention is a species. Growth and invention converge in the production of the network of created objects. We cannot deny, however, that there is a difference, at least of degree, between the current capacities for the production of created objects by humans and by the animals most gifted in this respect. One of the main reasons for this difference lies in the multiplication of mediations among humans between the created object and nature, on the one hand, and the created object and the operator, on the other hand. The network of two-way pathways from nature to humans and humans to nature displays an indefinite anastomosis and a multitude of relays. Hence, the, art, the orders of magnitude made to communicate and interact in this way are much larger than in the animal realm, even in the best cases, social termites, in which the operator's activity cannot avail itself of a complex chain of mediations. The only angle through which an equivalence to the plurality of human mediations can be seen among animal species is that of the anatomic physiological specialization of individuals working cooperatively, or in the serialization of successive specializations of individuals across their life course, bees. In such instances, we encounter a plurality of developmental phases in the character of an organized cycle that we witness in the becoming of the mental image tending towards invention. This also seems fairly straightforward to me, that really what distinguishes the relationship between the human and the milieu from the relationship between other animals and the milieu is this uh, the complexity of the technical envelope, as he calls it, with there being more mediating tools between the human being and the technical object, and then the technical object and the milieu for the human than there are for, for instance, termites, um, where there is a kind of I don't know if you would call it a technical object or a kind of invention, um, a created object that acts as an envelope 
that um, mediates between the animal and the milieu. Yeah, like even even a relatively simple technical object like a road, for example, um, you can already see that like you know building a road, uh, you know beyond like the most basic uh, you know path through the forest that's just sort of cleared by trampling the the undergrowth. Um, as soon as you start using like say a machete to chop down vines and branches or uh, some sort of other tool that you use to level the surface, et cetera, you're already mediating not just, it's not just one object mediating between um, the human being, the individual human organism and the natural environment. Now you have like some tool that serves as a mediation to produce uh, another object, namely the road, and then the road mediates between the human and the rest of the world. So you have, uh, you know, at, at least two steps in this mediation and, and of course, that's a relatively simple uh, technical object, um, something like, um, I don't know, uh, I mean, it, it, pretty much any object that we use today in our society has like many steps. You can think of like the production of, of uh, plastic, for example, you, know, you have to extract um, petroleum from uh, from the earth. You have to you know do all sorts of chemical operations on that petroleum product to turn it into plastic um, and that involves machines that have to have you know metal extracted from the earth and refined and manipulated in various ways so like any even a simple thing like a, I don't know, a toothbrush or whatever involves you know hundreds of other technical objects to um, you know produce it to produce the raw materials that are used to produce those machines that produce the the toothbrush so there's like um, this extremely complicated network of mediations so that it's not just uh, a sort of um, confrontation or encounter of the human individual with a natural environment. It's now this very complicated mediation between the individual organism and these this network of technical objects uh, that relate that individual organism to other organisms and to the natural environment. So... Yeah, much more complicated in in terms of the degree of mediation, the the number of steps of mediation compared to even something like a you know these social insects that have um, a very differentiated society of different roles that individuals perform within that society and that produce things like a, a beehive or a termite nest that um, in some respects resemble a technical object. Oh, and I looked it up, and apparently it's pronounced sinenkaim. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, this this refers. So it's kind of funny that he uses these technical terms, "sinenkaim" and "anastomosis" and "anastomosis" um, um, in this conclusion without ever like he's never used these terms in the book itself. So he's <laughs> throwing them in. You guys, you know what this is, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, so "sinenkaim" is the sort of common body that um, certain organisms like corals produce. So um, we saw this in the individuation book where he talked about corals at, at you know pretty you know, pretty extensively. Um, so they like they form these like uh, colony forms um, where multiple organisms or multiple semi-individual beings uh, all sort of fuse together or um, bud from each other. So that you have like it's it's very difficult to determine where is one individual coral um, as opposed to like a, a whole group of corals it, it's not it's not obvious where the body of one individual begins and where the body of another one starts and they share a circulatory system for example and the uh, 
like the the food that one coral takes in, uh, the nutrients and stuff are are distributed over the whole the whole group of corals. Uh, so in that sense, they're like not really individuated into separate um, you know individual organisms. Um, and anastomosis is a, apparently a medical term, which means um, um, connecting uh, two, um, yeah, two um, portions of, a, of an organism, for example, like making a, a passage between um, two veins, like but through surgery, or two arteries. Um, and uh, so this is used, I guess, uh, to, to bypass a blockage or something like that. But anyway, so it's essentially just means a connection between two two things that are normally not connected. I can't remember if he's talked about this kind of thing in the book thus far, but um, well, I think he has the like. I'm thinking about. Um, I've read about. Uh, you know, sometimes archaeologists will you know encounter objects from civilizations that no longer exist and not really know the function that these objects had in the civilization, despite the sort of obvious organic similarity between us and the uh, people who were members of the civilization. And it seems like, you know, especially with this proliferation of tools between nature and um, the human, the ability to uh or the role of i guess you know educating into educating members of the civilization into or the group of people into a certain way of understanding the world and also of operating the tools necessary uh for at least part of this complex mediation seems inseparable from the use of the tools themselves i don't know if he would consider i remember he talked about formalization and giving commands and related that to like geometry textbooks, but I don't know if he would consider that educational process uh, another series of inventions, or you know, education as uh, itself a kind of technical object. Yeah, I think that would probably fit under this this category that you mentioned of formalization, because um, you have like if you just sort of find a, a random tool that you have no idea what it does, and you try to manipulate it, you're going to and move it around in in strange ways that don't really fit with the way that it's supposed to be used, or you're, you're going to, you know, the types of actions you would try to perform with this object probably are more varied than what you're supposed to use it for. Whereas someone who actually knows what it's for um, will use it in the specific ways that it's designed for. And so part of what it means to learn how to use a tool is to like restrict your movements and and operations with on that tool or using that tool to the ones that it that it's designed for like you you use a hammer to hit a nail and not to hit a screw for example um, uh, and whereas you would use a screwdriver to screw in a, a screw and not to you know hit the nail um, so like once you once you know how to use an object and once you're trained how to use that object you um, use the object for a restricted set of movements or operations in a way that you wouldn't if you have no idea what the object is for. So it, it like it formalizes the types of gestures and actions you would um, you would potentially um, try to perform using this object in, in re- sort of restricts it to a, a, a kind of like stereotyped set of motions um, 
that uh, is like uh, sort of coordinate to that um, that object. So yeah, I think I think it fits. Uh, it, it's, it's similar in some ways to like um, the way that uh, uh, a religious ceremony, for example, involves like specific types of actions that um, you perform. You know, in in this setting uh, at this time, etc. Uh, likewise, uh, performing a, a, an operation on using a technical object requires, you know, performing certain motions in certain circumstances and then other motions in a different circumstance and knowing how to distinguish one from the other. Um, and so, yeah, you have to be sort of trained into using that technical object in the correct way. That's interesting. Yeah, it's um, interesting to think of that as part of this envelope of um, the organism uh, sort of ways of understanding the tools, but also probably of understanding the world that you interact with through the use of those tools. Yeah. And, and there's like, um, I mean, part of part of the, the sort of training that you get in the use of tools can be like a way of, yeah, uh, what we would call more specifically a way of understanding the world. So you, you might have like a classification of um, materials, for example, like what, what types of objects do you use a saw on? Like mostly you use it on wood. Um, but, um, you know, you might, so you might have some sort of, you know, quasi theoretical understanding of like, these are the type like soluble materials, um, you know, primarily wood, maybe some other materials as well, but, uh, bone or, or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, so like using a saw requires a, a classification of the world into soluble materials and other, you know, unsolvable materials, um. Or whereas using a, I don't know a chisel, you you would use it on like stone primarily, um, and so like you would you know classify the world into um, materials that can be chipped uh, using a chisel and other materials that are too soft for that. Um, um, so yeah, like you might have some sort of quasi theoretical understanding of the world in terms of classifying entities um, based on what tools are appropriate or or effective in. Um, manipulating those entities, uh, and that can be even, you know, developed into uh, uh, something closer to a, a theoretical science. Like um, um, a lot of um, Aristotle's works can be seen as a sort of systematization of that kind of uh, pre-theoretical understanding of the world. Um, like I'm thinking of the the meteorology book four, I believe, um, is like a, a sort of classification of. Um, the or a, a representation of the world in terms of the elements the you know fire air water and and earth um and and like how different elements interact with each other um so this is like a, a sort of theoretical um picture of the world that's based on like uh you know what types of operations you can do with entities like you know solids you can pick up and manipulate liquids you have to put into a, a container of some kind uh, etc um so yeah learning how to use objects in the correct ways um, will sort of go along with uh, a picture of, you know, what types of entities are there in the world that you can, uh, you know, manipulate with those objects or use those objects on. I wonder, uh, and this is maybe going too far afield, but if, um, if the development of technology is driven by, you know, kind of, the need for like valorization of capital, for instance, then, you know, it, and if the use of technology involves a certain way of looking at the world, then it seems that a uh, uh, civilization that, the you know, technological advancement of which is driven by 
a need for valorization, we'll end up seeing the world differently than a civilization in which technological advancement is driven by different uh, different motives. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But I think what Simon Don would also point to is this, um, like he talked about in the uh, in individuation, this role of like the technician as sort of mediating or or having this connection to something extra social, um, and and so like you know part of producing technical objects, um, even in a capitalist society, there's of course um, you know the the motivation of producing objects that, for example, um, allow you to minimize the labor time required to produce some other object. Um, but, uh, you know, the machine or whatever technical object, it has to actually work. You have to actually use um, properties of uh, existing materials or invent a new material that has the right properties, or, you know, you have to use some sort of um, aspects of the natural world in the appropriate ways to bring about the effects that you want. You can't just sort of um, like decree that your object is going to um, work at the you know uh, at at reducing the labor time required to produce some other object. Um, like a steam engine has to um, take advantage of you know various thermodynamic properties, um, and and those you know properties of thermodynamic uh, uh, interactions um, are are not like sort of uh, are not brought about by um, capitalism as such, they, they might be revealed through the use of steam engines in capitalist production processes, but they, um, you know, they, they aren't uh, produced themselves by a uh, capitalist production process. So, um, yeah, this role of the technician, I think for Simon Don would, would be uh, sort of a, two, a two-sided role. On the one hand, a technician, of course, wants to, um, or you know, part of the role of the technician is to ensure that technical objects are um, functioning in such a way that they they do um, serve the purposes of the owners of those technical objects, and in a capitalist society, that is, you know it's the capitalists who own the technical objects. Um, but then on the other hand, um, the technician has to actually you know uh, take advantage of existing uh, properties of um, the natural world, uh, you know uh, capacities that different substances have, um, different forces, etc. Uh, and you know, manipulate those uh, elements of nature, um, arrange them in the right way. You know, um, yeah, just in general, um, has to connect with something that is not strictly social, and um, use that element of nature in such a way as to bring about the desired effect. Uh, so yeah, there's like a sort of two-sided role of the technician, I think, for Simondo. And of course, it, it's like you can't really separate out those two roles in any clean or like strict way because um you can only ever like we can only ever understand the world the natural world um in by using the concepts that we actually have available to us and those concepts are um, you know mediated by the sort of um social arrangements uh, what what kind of technical objects we have available to us what kind of education we have experience etc all, all those concepts are sort of um um, part of our social heritage, what we inherit from our from the preceding generations. Um, so we can only ever use the concepts that we actually have available to us, and and those concepts are in part shaped by um, the form of the society in which we live. Um, um, so we we don't have like a, a sort of unmediated access to what the natural world 
you know, consists in um, separately from human social categories, for example. Um, but at the same time, we can't like reduce our relationship with the natural world to something that it would be purely social, um, that we can just sort of, you know, decree what that relation would, would be. Um, so there's like a, a more complicated and hard to express um, relationship where, um, yeah, we, we use different properties of the natural world for different social functions. And uh, we um, understand that aspect of the natural world in relation to those social functions, but never in a sort of reduction of one to the other. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I think this, yeah, I think uh, this will take us to the end of the conclusion. So um, I can read the last bit. Within this perspective provided by the analysis of the created object, the study of the mental image could become a particular case of the study of a larger set of phenomena. It is through the final phase of invention that the cycle of the mental image might reveal that it belongs to the general category of self-organizing processes of activity, one of whose major aspects in human societies, in human societies is the organization of work. We could then understand how, guided originally by the vector of motor tendencies, projecting encounters with objects, the mental image is charged with exteroceptive information before being formalized into symbols of reality in order to serve as the basis of an organizing invention. To this end, besides exceptional cases where a spectacular and large-scale reorganization propagates through a society and becomes a new landmark, there is a cont continuous web of implicit reorganizations interwoven in work, but which are neither generalized nor propagated outside of the field of application for which they were meant. And yet such minor reorganizations are also inventions and the force of distributed inventions within a task, each too minimal to propagate outside of the situation, may be as important as a massive act of invention that organizes a situation in one blow, together with all analogous situations. This is especially the case in the animal activity of object creation, which minutely adjust tasks to themselves and to the media during their performance. This is also the case of artisanal production. Each task comprises a certain number of organizing actions, and if the scope of each of these actions is inferior to the dimension of the task, the created object remains essentially dependent on the particular condi conditions of its insertion within the milieu, on its end, and on the particular means of its realization. These inventions do not emerge outside of the operator, which may reproduce them in the course of analogous tasks, but not formalize them as an absolute. This is the case with animal or artisanal activity in which invention is distributed throughout its execution. Conversely, if the act of invention is concentrated over several tasks, it is formalized into an invention detachable from its conditions of performance, as in industrial work. Finally, a remarkable particular case is that of the dimensional adequation between an artwork and an organizing invention. The created object is entirely organized in a single act, without residue or fuzzy areas. But this action does not exceed the limits of the created object, which thus remains particular and unique. The art object is a stable intermediary between the artisanal between artisanal fabrication and industrial operation is a completely organized object and in this respect absolute, albeit singular. Within the artisanal object, invention remains within the limits of the performance of tasks, bringing about partial organizational linkages. Within the industrial object, invention exceeds the performance of tasks. Within the artwork, invention and the performance of tasks occur at the same time and have the same di dimension. The study of the mental image and of invention thus leads us to praxeology, quote, the science of the most universal forms and the most elevated principles of action within all living beings, unquote, according to the 1880 definition by Alfred Espinasse in the article titled Les origines de la technologie, the origin of origins of technology, published in La Revue Philosophique de la France et de l'étranger. Praxeology, together with the research of Slutsky, then Bogdanov, 
Technology, Moscow, 1922, has developed in the direction of the economy and the organization of human activity. Ostelev has also confirmed this trend towards the study of human activity, as well as Tade Shalovsky, uh, Les Principes de l'Action Éthique, Principles of Effective Action, Warsaw, 1960, cited by Kotarbinsky in Les Origines de la Praxeologie, The Origins of Praxeology. But it is reasonable to think that after having separated humans from animals and utilitarian action from action in general, praxeology could become a general praxeology, integrating the study of the most elementary forms of activity, which would in fact fit rather well with other investigations by Espinas. At this juncture, the cycle of the mental image progressing towards invention may well appear to be an advanced level of the activity of living beings considered, even in its most primitive forms, as autokinetic systems interacting with the milieu. The autokinetic aspect that manifests itself through the motor initiatives in less advanced life forms is translated within life forms endowed with complex nervous systems by spontaneity of functions which triggers before the encounter with the object the cycle of the image and which is concluded by invention. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think this bit is also relatively straightforward. Um, he um, essentially is just pointing this whole, um, or he's connecting the studies throughout this, this set of lectures that we just concluded um, towards this uh, field of proxyology, um, which uh, he, you know, a few of the people that he cites here have um, proposed, and I don't think it ever really developed into a sort of field of research uh, on its own. Um, but um, he's suggesting that there's a continuity between um, the uh, motor activity of organisms as such. Uh, so you can think even here of like bacteria, um, uh, you know, extremely simple um, living beings in some respects. Uh, uh, there's a continuity between this kind of motor activity uh, on the one hand, and then human technical and artistic production on the other. Um, so these are not like qualitatively distinct uh, forms of action or activity. They're um, obviously very different in certain respects in terms of, you know, the complexity of mediations involved and so on. Uh, but they're qualitatively the same. They're just in, in one is uh, just more mediated and more um, complex in certain respects than than the other. So we want to understand um, um, the human uh, process of invention of technical objects and creation of artistic objects um, as a, a sort of special case in of um, the general property of living beings of what he calls. Um, uh, autokinetic systems. So living beings are entities that um, bring about their own motion and development and uh, um, sort of uh, spontaneity, I guess, in a, in a broad sense here, um, not specifically in the Kantian sense, but living beings um, uh, have this sort of internal principle of motion and development that non-living beings don't have, or at least not to the same degree. And this bit is also interesting, I think, in connection with uh, there's been fairly recently uh, research into what's sometimes called basal cognition, um, uh, and this is looking at um, living beings like like bacteria, uh, slime molds, and you know unicellular organisms, and and otherwise very simple beings um, as exhibiting something like cognition or something analogous to cognition that we would recognize in humans or other mammals or birds or whatever. Um, so like. Um, uh, I forget what, I think it might be E. coli, but anyway, some form of bacteria, they have um, um, uh, like signaling processes. They, um, they recognize the amount of nutrients in their environment um, and they um, secrete some kind of signaling chemical uh, 
And then if there's um, not enough nutrients in the environment, uh, you know, and, and that means the signaling chemical is uh, uh, the concentration of that signaling chemical increases uh, when there's not enough nutrients. Um, and then when it reaches a certain threshold, the bacteria form uh, a sort of colony stage and then release a spore that um, can travel further to another region where there might be higher concentrations of nutrients. Um, so like they, they um, respond to the conditions in their environment in such a way as to um, produce an adaptive behavior. And, th and this is sort of a general uh, like definition of what, what we would understand by cognition. So they're not just sort of biological machines that respond in a, a very simple way to um, in individual variables of their environment, but they actually integrate information uh, from, you know, in different forms uh, about their environment. Um, they, they can cooperate in, in sophisticated ways, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, there's been a lot of um, research over the last, like, 10, 20 years um, into these forms of activity in uh, single-celled organisms um, that, you know, they, they exhibit a lot more sophisticated behavior than was previously recognized. Uh, and so um, I think Simon Don would, would be very interested in this kind of research and, and would see this as a sort of confirmation of his general um, approach to study uh, human, uh, you know, sophisticated human behaviors like uh, technical invention, artistic production, and so on, uh, in continuity with um, other organisms um, and, you know, starting with, you know, other mammals, but, you know, looking beyond beyond that into even single-celled organisms. Uh, so this is like part of the whole, you know, process of the development of living beings is precisely this um, capacity to um, adapt to the environment and also to adapt the environment to uh, the organism's needs uh, in, and interact between those two sort of directions of fit. Um, so... Yeah, I think I think this kind of research is is very interesting and something that Simon Don would probably also be very interested in. Yeah, that's something. Um, yeah, so Angus has put in the chat about um, Jains, the um, uh, religious group in India, who um, are um, very strict in terms of their dietary requirements. They don't eat any plants that you have to kill to to um, to eat, like um, root vegetables, for example, where you have to dig up the plant to uh, to eat it. Um, um, yeah, and, and what exactly the ethical implications are of this kind of understanding of cognition as being, you know, coextensive with life in some respect. I, um, it's something I haven't really thought about that much, but yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, I haven't really seen anyone talk about that, but yeah, there's, you know, a lot of evidence about cognition in, in plants as well. Um, um, that, you know, plants are like, you know, in the same way as I was describing for bacteria, plants are, uh, they're not just sort of biological machines. They uh, integrate information. They explore their environment. They um, respond to um, the opportunities and dangers of their environment in um, sophisticated ways, etc. It's just the fact that they they do so much more slowly than animals do uh, makes it hard for us to um, sort of appreciate that um, sophistication uh, of plants. So, like one of the sort of basic tools of studying plant cognition is just the time lapse video. Um, where you just record a plant over the course of an hour or or a day or whatever, and then you you replay it at much higher speeds, and then you can see like it, it just you know looks much more um, uh, responsive. Um, in it, it it's like you see the plant responding to something like um, uh, you know vines, for example, that grow up a um, uh, a pole 
like you can see the way that they sort of explore their environment until they find the pool and then they start grasping it and growing upwards if you record them over the course of a day or um, several days. Um, so yeah, it's like partly it's just uh, some limitations of like, uh, you know, again, this is a sort of a mediation of scale issue because the time scale at which plants respond is so much slower than our time scale that it's hard for us to, um, you know, to, to recognize them as um, uh, cognitive entities. Um, but then the technical object, uh, you know, the camera and the capacity to replay a recording um, at a, a greater speed uh, mediates between our time scale and the plant's time scale and allows us to um, actually recognize that and, and you know, understand the uh, the plant as uh, a cognitive entity, um, but yeah, like the what exactly the ethical implications of this are, um, you know, is is hard to um, hard to figure out exactly. Obviously, we need to eat something. Um, we like, and you know, if all living beings are cognitive in some respect, um, we humans, of course, have to absorb nutrients from other living beings. We can't photosynthesize, um, so um, yeah, that means we have to. Uh, our nutrition requires um, uh, absorbing nutrition from other cognitive beings. Uh, and so, yeah, what exactly that means for the ethics of eating, um, I'm not sure. Uh, so were there any other like comments or questions or anything else we should bring up before we move on to um, what we want to read next? Uh, nothing else for me. It was a pretty straightforward conclusion. <clears throat> Yeah, surprisingly, like compared to the conclusion of uh, individuation, which like raises all kinds of strange problems. Um, right. Um, this one's relatively straightforward. Um, so I would suggest that we can stop the recording and and just discuss off recording, and then we can post in the in the channel to uh, you know what exactly we decide on, if that's okay with everyone. That sounds good. Okay. So I will stop the recording.